0: In the year 1050 A.D., a Viking ship captain named Herman O'Neill set his sights on Northern Ireland. O'Neill was an ambitious man. He planned to sail to the island, launch a military conquest, and become its king. The only problem with O'Neill's plan was that a rival Viking captain also hoped to one day rule Northern Ireland. So to avoid a bloody conflict with a fellow Viking crew, O'Neill proposed a contest with his rival. They agreed. The first captain to sail to the northern shore of Ireland and touch his hand down on Irish soil would be entitled to press on and conquer the island. Well, both captains, they sailed hard. They fought the winds the whole way. It was neck and neck across the high seas. But as the Irish shore came into view, the other Viking captain, his ship, caught a gust of wind, and he surged ahead of Harriman O'Neill. Captain O'Neill became alarmed. He wanted Ireland so badly, and he saw his opportunity slipping away. And when the opposing captain boarded his little rowboat to head to shore, O'Neill became desperate. He, he whipped out his knife. He whipped out his knife. He threw his hand up on the deck of the ship, on the rail. And he, ah, ah, he cut off his hand. <laughs> he cut off his hand. And from the deck of his ship, O'Neill threw his hand toward the shore. And it landed right before the fellow Viking captain stepped out of his boat. Harriman O'Neill's hand was the first to touch down on Irish soil. And it won for him the right to pursue and to conquer the island and to become its king. As a matter of fact, O'Neill's colossal sacrifice won for him the right to press on And to become the king. His army was successful in battle and it allowed him and his heirs to rule for many, many years. True story. Obviously, Herman O'Neill was zealous for victory. He wanted it really, really, really bad. And I want to challenge us this morning. I have a question for you. How bad today do you want it? How much do you desire spiritual victory in your life? One day, we are all going to stand before the God who created us, as well as the Lord and Savior who died to redeem us. And in that day, how bad do you want to hear the word said over you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Not just in a final triumph like Samson's, but don't you want to live a whole lifetime of faithful service. I do. Do you want victory as much as Herman O'Neill wanted Northern Ireland? Enough to chop off a hand or even pluck out an eye? How bad do you want to overcome sin and be the man that God desires you to be? With that in mind, let me read our text again. I want it to soak in this morning. If your right eye causes you to sin Now, it's tragic that over the years, people have taken Jesus' words here literally. They've resorted to physical amputation to corral their sinful, lustful tendencies. The early church leader, Origen of Alexandria, lived around 200 AD. And according to church history, Origen literally emasculated himself. He chopped off his genitals in an attempt to overcome sexual desire. As a matter of fact, enough men followed his lead that the church at the time had to outlaw the practice by issuing a decree. In the late 1800s, a Scottish preacher named A.J. Gossip had a student who went stark raving mad. In a crazed state, he took a razor blade and he cut off his hand. And when Gossip got to the young man, he found him laughing and shouting hysterically, I did right, I did right. Now I can look Jesus in the face. What an erroneous, tragic misunderstanding of these verses. Understand, Jesus here is using a literary device known as hyperbole or emphasis by exaggeration. He's overstating an issue to dramatize a level of intensity. Imagine a field goal kicker. He comes in and he kicks the ball 50 yards. It goes straight through the goal post. The announcer Shouts out, he kicked that ball right over the moon. Now, obviously, that football didn't even leave the stadium, let alone the earth's atmosphere. But all his listeners understand exactly what he means. Likewise, we know here what Jesus meant. He's using a figure of speech. We know that Jesus spoke figuratively here since a literal interpretation would have been pointless. Trust me, gouge out your right eye and you can still lust with your left eye. I promise you, you can. Hey, chop off one hand, and you can steal with the other hand. As a matter of fact, if sin is in your heart, you can chop off both hands, and you'll sin with your nubs. (laughs) Physical amputation doesn't alter an inner attitude and an inner appetite. At first glance, this passage seems bizarre but it really is packed with practical, workable, powerful words of hope for men who struggle with sin. I want you to jot down four words. We did this last night, didn't we? Four words. Just four words. It's a men's retreat. we got to keep it simple. (laughs) Jot down just four words. This is what I'm going to challenge each of us to do today. Recognize. These are your four R's. Recognize. Second, repent. Third, recruit. Am I going too fast for you? And fourth, rethink. Let me give them to you again. Recognize, repent, recruit, rethink. Here are keys. For victory for men who want to overcome sin. First, if you want to be victorious over the sin in your life, you need to recognize the root of your problem. Notice Jesus tells us, if your right eye causes you to sin, then he says it again, if your right hand causes you to sin, Realize, in our text, Jesus is telling us to identify and deal with the cause of our sin. In verse 29, the word translated sin refers to the bait stick. The bait stick is the trigger that springs the trap. You see, the little mouse takes the bait and it trips the stick. And then it's that stick that slams the life right out of the varmint. It's the bait stick. And Jesus is here asking us, what is the cheese in your life? What is the bait stick? What is it that sucks you in and sets you up and then slams the life out of you? You remember for Superman, it was kryptonite. You remember whenever he got around that rare green mineral, it robbed, his, robbed him of his strength. It just sucked the life out of turned him to goo. Hey, what's your kryptonite? Is it money? Is it ambition? Is it alcohol? Booze? Is it pornography? Do you play the horses? Is it women and skirts? Is it video games? I mean, some of us can be doing fine for days. Then we take the bait, it trips the trap, and we're right back in the same mess we thought we'd escaped. Hebrews 12, verse 1 describes the cheese as the sin that so easily ensnares us. And Jesus is asking, What is it? What is it in your life that causes you to sin? We need to identify the cheese. Dealing with sin is like pulling weeds. You know this, Jose, you're pulling weeds. If you don't get it by the root, it's just going to grow up real quick again. You know, to me, one of the truly amazing facts about human anatomy is that a person can't smell his own BO or bad breath. Do you realize this? I mean, I can reek enough to knock a buzzard off a porta potty (laughs) And yet, I'm usually the last one to know it. How can that be? But the same is true with sin in my life. We develop these huge blind spots. We see everybody's problem but our own. I'm always amazed at how skilled I am of shifting the blame and dodging responsibility. I'll tackle anything but the real issue. You recall God told Balaam to go with the Midianites but only under specific conditions? It was his greed, though, that caused him to go anyway. And when the angel of the Lord blocked Balaam, his donkey saw the angel and steered off course. But rather than realize the error of his ways, Balaam beat his burrow. He hit the donkey. Finally, God opened the donkey's mouth so he could rebuke his owner. But I wonder how many of us have been guilty of beating our burrow Hitting our donkey. We're the cause of the bad situation we're in. But rather than take responsibility, we've taken out our frustrations on our wife or on our kids or on our co-workers or even on our church. There's an old old AA saying that is absolutely true. You should write it down. If I am not the problem, there can be no solution. If I am not the problem... There can be no solution. Today, our whole society is bent on shifting blame. How often do we hear it? It's my parents' fault. Or it's the wife's fault. Or it's how I was raised. Or I was born this way. Or I'm just a victim of my circumstances. Ours is the age of victimization. It's been said no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. I heard the true story of a minor league baseball manager who got so frustrated with his center fielder's play that he benched the boy, and he took the position himself the next inning. Well, three balls were hit to center field that next inning, hit right to the manager. The first ball, ball took a bad hop, popped him right in the mouth. The second ball he lost in the lights, and he allowed it to drop right in front of him. And the third ball was a sizzling liner that he misjudged and he let roll all the way to the fence. When the manager came off the field, he grabbed the former center fielder by the uniform and started shaking him and shouting. He said, son, you got center field so messed up, not even I can get it straightened out. (laughs) He wasn't seeing the root, root problem, was he? He wasn't recognizing the cause of his problem. Imagine a rope five feet long. One end of this rope is tied to my ankle, and the other end of this rope is tied to a pit bull with rabies. Get the picture? And here I am trying to live a normal life. I get up in the morning. I go to bed at night. I head to the office. I do my job. I come home. I hang out with my amigos. But all the while, I'm ignoring the pit bull that's tied to my ankle. Do you see a problem with this picture? Of course you do. There's no way that my life is going to have any semblance of normality as long as that pit bull is tied to my ankle. Oh, maybe for a few hours a day while the pit bull's asleep, but my life will be in turmoil. I can't work. Because the dog bites and growls at my coworkers. I can't spend any quality time with my kids. They're afraid of the vicious dog. My wife won't sleep with me because I'm bringing a pit bull to bed. The only friend I've got is Michael Vick. Most <laughs> Atlanta fans I haven't gotten over that yet. <laughs> my whole life is in shambles because of that lousy dog. But here's the point, I can spend thousands of hours and thousands of dollars in counseling learning how to be a good employee, and how to be a better husband, and how to be a loving dad, and how to be a loyal friend, but I'm just treating the symptoms. Face it, until I get that doggone dog off my ankle, nothing I do to solve my problems is going to straighten out my life i got to stop sidestepping the real issue. I can even come to church. I can walk the blessed aisle, stand in the altar, pray a prayer to Jesus himself. I can cry my eyeballs out in sincere remorse for the damage I've done and the pain that I've caused the people I love. I can say that I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ But if I deliberately rise to my feet, walk out without doing anything about the pit bull tied to my ankle, I'm no better off than when I came in. But Sandy, doesn't God cleanse us from our sin when we confess it and when we ask for His forgiveness? And of course God does. He's faithful to do that. But you've got to confess the right stuff. You've got to confess the real cause of your sin. Here's the question. What's your pit bull? Is it your drinking? Is it greed? Do you have a gambling problem? Is it an overstuffed ego and pride? Is it pornography? What if I walked into my living room with that pit bull tied to my ankle and fell asleep on the couch? Imagine the damage that dog would do to my home. He'd gnaw on the carpet and poop on the floor and slobber all over the furniture. And what if this went on day after day after day and I never dealt with the dog? Even pretended that the dog didn't exist. Do you think my wife is going to continually come after me and clean up the mess that I've made? Because I haven't addressed the issue with that dog. Do you think my wife. You don't know my wife. Kathy Adams is nobody's fool. And neither is God. God knows if you're just pretending. If you haven't really dealt with the dog. Man Jesus loves you. He died to forgive you. There is nothing you've done. He won't forgive. God desperately wants to forgive you. But you've got to confess the sin that's really causing the problem. Once an old man, he offered the same prayer every Sunday morning at church. He'd stand up and he'd pray, Lord, clean out the cobwebs. Oh, Lord, clean out the cobwebs. Finally, one Sunday, one young fella he got tired of the old guy's prayer. And as soon as he had sat down, he jumped up and he prayed, Lord, forget about the cobwebs. Kill the spider. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is telling us here. Recognize the problem. What is it that causes you to sin? Get that out on the table before God and he'll do business with you. Well, first, recognize the cause. And second, you need to radically repent. Radically repent. See, once you've identified what's causing the sin, what's next? Well, Jesus tells us, pluck it out and cast it from you. Cut it off and cast it from you. Here's how to deal with a sinful stronghold you pluck it off and you cut it out and you cast it from you. And this calls for radical action. Can you think of anything more drastic than chopping off a hand? Or plucking out an eye. I mean, this imagery is so graphic and violent. Obviously, Jesus is calling you for desperate action. And this is how you deal with a sin that's hard to shake. You stop playing around with it, you do whatever it takes logistically and physically to remove yourself from the vice that keeps you entangled in its web. Evangelist Billy Sunday used to say, the reason we struggle with sin is that we treat it like a cream puff rather than a rattlesnake. Repentance takes sin seriously. See, true repentance is more than remorse. It's more than just tears and regret. It's more than a wounded pride or being sorry that you got caught or the public embarrassment that comes with it. Or wanting it over so you can avoid the painful consequences. It's none of that. Listen carefully. Repentance is the willingness to do whatever it takes not to sin again. Let me repeat that. Repentance is the willingness to do whatever it takes not to sin again. Simply put, it's severing yourself from the cause of your sin. You recognize the cause, then you sever yourself from that cause or repent radically. Throughout the New Testament, the Lord always expects two things from us. He wants us to repent and believe. This is the gospel. Repent and believe. Believe. You need to have faith. You need to turn your life over to Jesus. Let Him do an awesome work in you. He'll do a heart transplant. He'll take out your heart of stone, the Bible says, and He'll replace it with a compliant heart, a soft, tender heart, a heart that loves God and loves other people. Believe and receive the power of the Holy Spirit. But all the while, my other responsibility is to repent. That means that as I'm Asking God to forgive me and empower me and change me. I'm staying as far away from the sin as possible. See, Jesus cuts the rope, but you can't keep petting the pit bull. Now, I'm going to say that again. Jesus cuts the rope, but you can't keep petting the pit bull. You need to supply a willingness to change. Now, I understand, we can't change ourselves. If we could, Jesus would have never had to die for us. Jesus alone has the power to affect significant changes in our lives. But we have to provide him with the desire to change. God is not going to work changes in your life against your will. You've got to provide the willingness. This is why repentance takes drastic action. To overcome a habitual sin, you need to remove yourself from the people and the situations that perpetuate that sin. As Jesus said, gouge it out, cut it off, cast it away. Stay away from the cause of that sin. You see, repentance gets very practical. It's like cutting off an appendage. You take a different route home from work that avoids the bar. That you frequented for years. You skate around folks that used to sell you cocaine. You just don't even put yourself in the same space with those people. You throw out the pot plants that you still got growing in your basement. You get a porno filter for your computer, for the internet. Or you let your wife browse your laptop on a regular basis. You block out the cable channels that stir up lustful thoughts. You cut up your credit card so that you don't fall prey to impulsive spending again. See, if you don't do those things, you can't say you're truly repentant. Real real repentance involves me renewing my mind and restructuring my time and reordering my priorities and rearranging my schedule and reassessing my friends If maintaining my integrity means losing my job, then so be it. God will give me another job. If the TV is the bait stick, then I need to lock it in a closet for a while. If I'm single and my physical desires are out of control, then repentance means I'm going to stop dating until I can get a handle on my hormones. Recall our initial question, guys. How bad do you want it? You see, the sacrifices each of us are called on to make will vary, but the reaction needs to be the same. Yes, Lord, whatever I need to do, we need to repent at the root. Don't settle for anything less than total victory. See, here's a mistake a lot of guys make people think that they can overcome our ensnaring sin by tapering off. Oh, I can still sin. I just won't sin as much. But if you're struggling with a stronghold, the solution is not to taper off. Jesus says, cut it off. You cut it off. You don't taper off. If you want God's deliverance, you can't expect to just ease away. See, the Lord tells us that we've got to cut it off and cast it out. We've got to put an end to that sin. Don't just try to strike a happy medium. Jesus is clear, whatever causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Reminds me of the guy who went to a fortune teller, to a medium. And all this old gal did was just smile at him. She had this big old plastic smile plastered all over her face. The man got so frustrated, he slapped the silly grin right off her face. Later, he was arrested for striking a happy medium. hey that's not what you want to do if you're struggling with sin don't just strike a happy medium don't hang on to your sin for a rainy day see some of you have a stash waiting on you right now it's in your pocket or it's in a cabinet back home or it's in your garage tucked away where your wife can't find it hold on to that sin and it'll come back to haunt you. Don't ever forget, stuff leads to other stuff. (laughs) Do you understand that? Stuff leads to other stuff. Life is full of chain reactions. It's the snowball effect. Get the ball rolling, and it builds momentum. And this works in either direction. Start moving in godliness, and guess what? Godliness will grow. But likewise entertain little compromises, and they end up leading to bigger compromises. Here's the principle. Stuff leads to other stuff. Vin Scully, you know who Vin Scully is, don't you? He's a longtime announcer for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Once he got a letter from a female listener who wrote to tell him that she was expecting a baby. And you wonder what Vin Scully had to do with this white gal getting pregnant. It's not what you think. Here's what she writes. She said, Dear Vin, my husband falls asleep at night listening to the Dodgers game. The radio is on his side of the bed. And to turn it off, I have to crawl across him. I want you to be the first to know that we're expecting a baby in six months. (laughs) Stuff leads to other stuff. You know what I mean? She had to crawl across her husband to get to the radio and stuff leads to other stuff. You, you, you know what I mean. See, this is why tapering off is not good enough. you got to cut it off. Any little action can set off a chain reaction. And this is why a big part of the Christian life isn't just cutting off bad habits and bad attitudes It's developing good habits, new thought patterns, a new identity. Remember, the snowball effect works either way. Get rolling in the wrong direction, it's hard to stop. But you get some momentum flowing in a Godward direction, and you can go from grace to grace to grace. You'll begin to grow. What a blessing that will be. Here's what Jesus is telling us. We need to recognize our sin. Then we need to radically repent, sever ourselves from it. And then third, we need to recruit some help. Recruit some help. If Jesus meant to be taken literally, it would be very difficult for us to gouge out our own eye. Or to chop off our own hand. Most of us would be too squeamish to do the job ourselves. Harriman O'Neill is the exception to the rule. No, here's what I would want to do if I was going to cut off my hand. I'd hire a doctor to perform the surgery for me. And likewise, when it comes to this kind of struggle with sin, we too need some outside help. We need a friend. We need to recruit some help. I read where movie movie companies and concert promoters now assign sober companions to their famous actors and rock stars with substance abuse problems. For the company, they're protecting their investment. These people are sometimes called clean living assistants. They're always on duty. They're around the clock. They're always around the guy, the struggling star, to remind him, what the issues are, what's really at stake here. And as Christians, we too have a sober companion. His name is the Holy Spirit. He dwells with us and in us to convict us and to comfort us and to guide us. We should trust Him and we should walk with Him. But God also places us in a family of believers. In the church, we too need to recruit some other men to be clean living assistants. We need a Christian brother. We need a group of men who hold us accountable, who'll ask us hard questions like, how's it going at home? When was the last time you lost your temper with your kids? Hey, how did you spend your evenings on that recent business trip? Hey, are you reading your Bible every day? I heard it said, sin can breed only in the dark chambers of the mind. Sin can breathe only in the dark chambers of the mind. Like mold and mildew, sin flourishes in dark, damp spaces. But when we confess our sin, it gets it out into the open. When we expose our sin to the light of God's word and to the fresh air of the Holy Spirit, the sin dissipates and it loses its potency. This is why James chapter 5 verse 16 instructs us, to confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Healing takes place, power is unleashed when we open up our lives to each other. It's been observed in the early church, Christians confessed their faults to one another. In the medieval church, they confessed their faults to a priest. In today's evangelical church, we confess our faults to God alone. See, Christians have become more and more private in our confessions, and we've become more and more shallow in our fellowship. If we're going to deal effectively with the sin and struggles in our lives, we've got to make room for people who care. We've got to. Who will help us chop off that sin when necessary. So often we worry about what other people are going to think of us if they know the truth, if they learn of our real problems. But most likely, those other people have the very same struggles themselves. We hide from each other while we desperately need each other. Let me ask this group a question. Will all the perfect people please stand up? Raz the only. No, not Raz. Not even rested up. Do you see that? Not even rested up. There are no pe- perfect people in this room here today. Nobody in here is never sinned. Nobody here is qualified to cast the first stone. Everybody in here is in need of grace. This means that everybody here is in the same boat you're in. And they'll be sure to extend grace. Because they need it so desperately themselves. Nobody's here to judge. Nobody's going to judge you. We're all sinners saved by grace. We're trusting. We're hanging on by the mercy of God. Before you leave, before you leave today, you need to use this day to find another brother who can help you gouge it out and cut it off and throw it away. Well, there's one more key that we should glean from our text. When it comes to overcoming sin in our lives, we need to recognize its cause. We need to repent radically. We need to recruit some help. And then fourth, we need to rethink our priorities. Rethink our priorities. Here in Matthew 5, verse 29 and 30, Jesus is making value judgments. Value judgments now. Notice twice he tells us. It is more profitable. Profitable is a value word. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Understand a basic truth. Nothing on this earth in this life is worth holding on to if it sends you to hell. We'd all agree with that, I hope. One of the worst effects of sin is that it clouds our judgment. In the midst of the ensnaring sin, we can lose sight of important allegiances and loyalties in our lives. I met a man once who was so deluded by his sin that he was stealing his elderly mother's social security check each month so he could bet on the football gates. That's pretty low, man. Stealing money from your own mother. But sin clouds your judgment. For a person battling with a stronghold of sin, the images popping up on that computer screen are the only things they see. That next hit is the only thing they think about. Placing the bet, the next drink, that one final time ends up becoming their all-consuming fascination. In the heat of the moment, your sin can mean more to you than your spouse or your kid's Or your God, or even heaven and hell. This is why the person struggling with sin needs to stop and take the time to rethink their life. Sadly, in the world that we live in, the emphasis is on the here and now. People don't think much about eternity, people live for the moment or the weekend, they don't get much further in their plans eternity, heaven and hell, become mere afterthoughts. But heaven and hell, friends, are real. And your eternal state is being determined right now. Nothing is more vital to you. Trust me, eternity is today's most serious business. I guarantee you, 100 years from now, you'll wish you'd concerned about it, been concerned about it more. We need to rethink our priorities. We all need to re-examine the issues that are really important to us. Jesus is saying here, it's better to endure the unnecessized pain of gouging out an eyeball and entering into heaven with a patch than it is to spend eternity in hell with two eyes and 2020 vision. A blissful forever is worth a little discomfort right now. We need to rethink our priorities in light of eternity. See, just as a physical amputation causes severe pain, so can repentance. Repentance can be painful. To pluck it out, to cut it off, to cast it away, means saying goodbye to people and places and pleasures that used to fill a hole in our lives. When we first repent it's painful to lose some former preoccupations that we were dependent on. This is why we have to rethink and decide that the gain is worth the loss. It's a decision we make. In April 2003, a man named Aaron Ralston was climbing in Utah's Blue John Canyon. He was out for a one-day hike. Ralston was navigating a narrow canyon when an 800-pound boulder shifted and pinned his arm into a crack in the rock. Well, Aaron used his pocket knife to try to chip away the boulder to dislodge his arm, but no use. In fact, he rigged up some pulleys that he had in his backpack with some ropes that he had, hoping to move the boulder, but it was no good. After three days, this one-day journey turned into three days. After three days, he was out of food. He was out of water. He realized that he was going to die before anyone found him. So this 27-year-old engineer did what he had to do. To save his life, he cut off his arm just below his elbow. Aaron Ralston's drastic measures freed him from the entrapment, and he was able to hike to safety. Aaron said later, I felt pain and I coped with it. I moved on. Living was worth the pain. And guys, the same is true for us. Life in heaven, eternal life with God. Hey, I dare say life in your own home together with your wife and kids is worth whatever pain an amputation from sin might cause. It's worth it. Our passage teaches us that following Jesus requires painful choices. It hurts to gouge out a sin that was a source of security, or to cut off a friendship that was fun, or to throw out a pleasure that used to help you cope. When you get serious about sin, it will cost you. God insists that you change, and you have to be willing to change. But at first, change is always painful. Kent Hughes comments on this passage. He says this, It hurts to sever your hand or to tear out an eye. And it hurts to give up wrong things in our lives. But it is better your blood be on the ground than your life burn on the rubbish heap for eternity. It stings to turn from certain vices. But the gain gain from doing so is so worth the pain. Speaking of pain, Jesus endured his share, more than his share. He was willingly nailed to the cross of Calvary. He voluntarily paid the frightful penalty of our sin. For Jesus, the cross was a trade-off. Though it cost him enormous pain, the cross enabled him to forgive you and share his life with you both now and forever. And apparently, Jesus thinks, and this blows my mind, but Jesus thinks you're worth the trouble. And this is what following Jesus should mean to us when He calls on us to take up our cross and follow Him. We're saying that He, too, is worth our trouble. That life with Jesus, that the blessings of Christ are worth gouging out an eye or chopping off a hand or giving up whatever it is that might be standing between us and Him. The cross of Jesus is a symbol of sacrifice. In one bold, stunning act of courage, Jesus took up His cross and laid down His life for us. And now, in a thousand daily and often common ways, we're called on to take up our cross and lay down our lives for Him. Will you do it? You've been saved by the cross. Are you willing to now be a man of the cross? Don't think for a second you can take up a cross painlessly. The cross will cost you some discomfort, some pain, but it's worth it. It is worth it, friends. Laying down your life and following after Jesus is the only way to live victoriously over sin, the sin that tempts us. The only question left is this. How bad do you want it? How bad do you want it? Is life with Jesus, is this victory in Christ worth whatever it takes to overcome your ensnaring sin? How bad do you want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Bad enough to recognize the cause of your sin, to repent radically, to recruit some help. And to rethink your priorities, I hope so. Men of Calvary, chop it off. Pluck it out. Give it to God. And with all that's left, follow Jesus. Today you can cross over from sin to victory through his cross. Father, thank you for your words to us today. Lord, I pray that we could take these verses seriously. And see the love that motivates these words, Lord. You've you've given us hard words, strong remedies, because you love us so much, and you really do want to see us free from that pit bull that we've been dragging around. So, Lord, help us to re-examine the cause of our sin and be honest. Help us, Lord, to do whatever it takes to separate ourselves from whatever it takes to live in freedom. Lord, to recruit some help today. And here we're here, Lord. We're, we're, we have this opportunity today. We can reach out to each other. We can find some help here today. It's here. We just got to want it. And Lord, help us to rethink our priorities. Nothing is more important, Lord, than following Jesus and living in victory. And hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.